0: Today is going to be a bit different than past episodes. I had an intro totally recorded to announce that I was coming to LA in mid-March for our first live show, but unfortunately, due to coronavirus, I've decided to cancel my trip. I was really excited about this, so definitely stay tuned. We will definitely reschedule this. I will let you know when that comes to be. And because corona has been a hot topic recently, I wanted to address it on the show. Especially as it relates to those of us living with invisible illness. I wanted to discuss what role a global pandemic means to people living with invisible and chronic illness. Now, if you follow Made Visible podcast on Instagram, you likely know that I've been in Tel Aviv since the end of January, and I was planning on extending my trip until the beginning of April. But the coronavirus has had me questioning what to do. Do I stay? Do I leave? Do I leave sooner? Do I stay longer? And I talked to my doctors who weren't super concerned about me staying here. But the bigger concern was if Israel was going to close the borders and there were no flights out of Tel Aviv. And I potentially wouldn't have access to my medications long-term or my medical team. Of course, there are many incredible doctors here. But with such a rare condition, it's important for me to have access to my team, as I'm sure many of you can relate to. So at this point that I'm recording this episode, I'm on schedule to fly back to New York the week of March 9th. I will definitely be cleaning the seat on the plane, top to bottom, wearing a mask and doing everything I can to prevent myself from getting the virus, as I'm sure you guys are doing too. Now, before we get into the show, I will remind you that I am not an expert or a doctor on this topic, so I encourage you to do your own research and talk to your doctors about your specific conditions and case. I'm happy to bring you experts on this topic and the different aspects of managing life during a global pandemic, such as coronavirus. So let's get into it.
1: Okay, so my name is Hernando Garzon. I'm an emergency medicine physician by training. I um, went to medical school and did my residency in New York City where I grew up, and my career has been out in Northern California, primarily in Sacramento. And uh, I have done, since the beginning of that career as an emergency physician, a lot of disaster relief work and then global health work, responding to everything from man-made to natural disasters, some of them infectious disease outbreaks. One of my other administrative positions is the Sacramento County EMS medical director. And so I oversee all the EMS operations in Sacramento County. So that kind of stuff and that work before with disasters has given me some involvement in pandemic preparedness and things like that.
0: And how did you get into this?
1: Well, I I think as an emergency physician, the disaster response was quite interesting to me. When I began my very first job here in California, we were just starting our National Urban Search and Rescue System, and uh, I joined that team. So it's really a secondary career outside my clinical practice of emergency medicine, but the the first response I did was the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. And uh, that made me very interested in the process and then sort of this budding area of disaster medicine and disaster response, and it, it really dovetailed into the emergency medicine training I had had very nicely. And the global health work has just been an extension of that. And I've become very interested in doing medical and health system strengthening in in low-resource communities.
0: You must see some really crazy things. So you mentioned the term global pandemic. Can you explain what qualifies a global pandemic?
1: Yes. So according to the World Health Organization, An epidemic is when there is uncontrolled outbreak of an infectious illness in a given area, a given country. And when that epidemic spreads to two continents, they will declare it a pandemic.
0: And do you believe it will cause a significant public health crisis in the U.S.?
1: Yes. And I believe in many ways it already has. We already have cases of local transmission and every health expert I read on this matter and and I hear speak is talking about the inevitable of when and not if.
0: Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, as I said to you before we started recording, I'm here in Tel Aviv right now and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of buzz about it here. There's a handful of people who have it here and it's just sort of figuring out where to get information and how to decide who to listen to, you know, should we be canceling flights? Should we be avoiding certain people and things? And there's a lot of unknowns. So what have we learned from previous respiratory virus outbreaks about how people with chronic illness are affected by things like this?
1: Well, I think any infectious disease outbreak has a very characteristic bell-shaped curve to it, whether we do anything or not, right? You can look back at the 1918 Spanish flu that infected a third of the world population, 500 million, and it killed 50 million people worldwide. And that was a time when we had relatively little isolation capability, identification capability, treatment capability. And we've had a number of smaller outbreaks since then. I think that all of our interventions are designed to sort of decrease the height of that bell-shaped curve and also shorten the length of it. In other words, make the outbreak last less long and infect less people. And that's where the isolating people who've been exposed so that perhaps they don't transmit it to other people, improving treatments so we have better survival with the illness and that kind of thing. And clearly, for all of these things, there are certain populations which are at higher risk, and that typically includes older people that have weakened immune systems, or all these other people who may have weakened immune systems from all sorts of other chronic conditions as well.
0: And so what do you think those precautions are that people should be taking for people like me, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners who have invisible chronic illnesses and are already at risk in their own way, you know, in general, in being in large crowds and living daily life.
1: Right. I think the best advice comes from our local public health officials and the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. I think they have information about what we can do as the general public and as individuals to protect ourselves and our families as much as possible. And those um changes in sort of behavior and the social distancing and avoiding large crowds and travel into and out of endemic areas is even more important, obviously, for people with compromised immune systems.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I wonder your thoughts on the concept of isolation and how that works. So I just had a friend go to Rome and she came back to Tel Aviv and is, you know, isolating herself for the next 14 days. What is the concept behind that? And then what happens after 14 days, especially if she doesn't have any symptoms?
1: What we've discovered with this particular virus is that it seems to be transmissible before you even come down with symptoms or very early in the course of symptoms. And this is what makes infectious disease outbreaks actually very difficult to contain. When you are potentially infectious before you're symptomatic, you don't know if you have it. So the idea behind isolation is well, I was in an area that it, was known to have occurred. Maybe I contracted this. If I isolate myself or if we isolate those people coming into the country from these endemic areas, perhaps we can keep them from infecting others. At least we can slow down that process potentially. We believe the incubation period is around two weeks. So we're saying that if you two weeks have passed and you don't have symptoms, then you probably were not infected. Again, this is early in the process. This is rapidly changing information. What we're also seeing is that many people have what we call subclinical or asymptomatic infections. So we have tested some people positive who have no symptoms at all. And we're getting this virus from the back of their throat and their nasal areas, uh, even though they don't have symptoms. The question is, are they then contagious? They probably are if they're shedding the virus.
0: And a lot of the advice that we're hearing centers around staying healthy, washing your hands and not touching your face But for the people like me with chronic and invisible illnesses, healthy can be a really relative concept. So are there any other things that people can be doing to protect themselves?
1: I think that masks in general don't work. I would say that unless you're in a more confined space with a larger group of people in a public space, on a bus, in a plane, it would be potentially helpful to have a mask. Masks are most helpful to actually put on the person who's contagious because then they're less likely to sneeze or get these small particles that carry the, the virus into the atmosphere. But uh, barring that, they can be helpful for people who are in crowded spaces, but they're not helpful for the general public walking down the street. Other than the hand washing that you mentioned is honestly is isolation or avoiding. They talk about six feet, social distancing, don't shake hands with anybody. You know, don't get so close as to give a hug. You can kick your feet together or or rub elbows or something if you must greet somebody, but avoid the handshaking and the hugs.
0: What's really interesting to me that I've had a lot of conversations with people about in the last few days is so much of this is about the honor system, people coming back from these different countries and just hoping that, you know, they weren't exposed to it and that if they don't choose to put themselves into isolation that they are fine and they haven't been infected. What are your thoughts on that? And how has that played out with other conditions in the past and this sort of honor system concept?
1: This is one of the reasons that most health experts say that travel bans don't really work, is that there are enough people who violate those travel bans that feel they need to travel for X, Y, or Z reasons, for personal reasons or professional reasons, and then they end up being the source of entry for the virus, and that's why outbreaks happen. So there's actually a very good article in Foreign Policy about why travel bans don't work, although they are inevitable from a political sense. But the honor system is still helpful, right? The, I think the vast majority of people are actually concerned and feel fearful for themselves and thoughtful of others enough to sort of honor that. And this is what we have quarantined for, It's interesting. The the only officials that can declare a disaster and have the power to do that are either someone in political leadership, a president, a governor, a mayor, or a public health official. And when a public health official signs a quarantine order, it's legally binding. And you can have police officers make sure someone stays in their residence. And that's what the people that came in from the Diamond Princess and um, the first airplane of people from China, from the embassy staff and other asymptomatic Americans that went through military bases, all those patients that are being held in these military facilities are on a federal uh, quarantine order.
0: So wild, really. So if coronavirus does infect thousands of people in the U.S. and overloads our health care system, should people with chronic illnesses plan to avoid hospitals And clinics for things that are not related to coronavirus, just to really not be exposed to any of this?
1: That's a good idea for everybody, but again, especially important for people who are more at risk and and have autoimmune diseases, for sure. There are ways if you can have video visits with your doctors, if you can leave messages, I mean, anything you can do to avoid places where these people may be going. And we're even advising people if you have symptoms, this is how you come in to get tested. Don't just walk into your clinic unannounced. Don't just go to the emergency department unless you feel you truly have an emergency. Because, again, as you said, this is going to become a huge burden on the healthcare system to evaluate and treat these patients and trying to keep everyone else safe, other patients who don't have it, and healthcare workers.
0: Yeah. And so what symptoms are those that people should be watching out for?
1: They're sort of typical symptoms of a cold or flu that are indistinguishable from other COVID-19 viral illnesses. So fevers, difficulty breathing, cough, congestion, pain in the chest and the lungs, that kind of thing.
0: And does that answer change if the person has a chronic illness?
1: Not really. No, I think the symptoms are very similar, actually.
0: It's interesting because I have this constant chronic cough. I've had it for about a year now. And I feel like I'm looking around when I'm sitting in a restaurant or I'm walking down the street and coughing going, are these people assuming that I have it? And this is just part of my everyday life, but I don't have the other symptoms. I haven't been to these other places that I'm concerned about it. But it's this weird thing of like, I want to have a sign on my head. Like, I don't have it. (laughs) but it's part of my life that I have this cough that sounds not good. Um, Where would you recommend people get up-to-date, accurate information about coronavirus, and where should they stay away from?
1: I think the Centers for Disease Control site of information for this, and also local public health officials where you are can give you the most accurate information for what's going on locally. And I think trusted news sources are the best you know, the Associated Press, one the New York Times, the Washington Post, whatever local newspaper that you feel uh, is not a member of the sort of biased fake news contingency, but uh, more science-based.
0: And is there anything else that you want to make sure we address as it relates to this topic? I do want to point out that I,
1: I think there is understandable public fear But this kind of illness, infectious disease outbreak, we see commonly every 10 to 40 years. And in this particular case, it's following a path very similar to typical seasonal influenza. It seems to have a contagiousness about the same same process as seasonal influenza. And because of that, it seems to be unstoppable in terms of getting around the world like seasonal influenza does. And I think we've sort of gotten a little numb because we see it every year, but seasonal influenza will kill forty to 60,000 people annually. And I think most people aren't aware of that, right? So I think on a yearly seasonal basis, people with autoimmune diseases and otherwise compromised immune systems have to worry about the regular seasonal flu in the same way that they have to worry about this.
0: That's such a good point that you bring up that I've thought about because- I've never been really fearful of the flu. Obviously, I'm preventative. I get the flu shot every year. And I always say to my guests, if you're going to come into the studio and you don't feel well or you have a cough, do not do that. Let's reschedule. And we've certainly done that. So I take preventative measures. I am like the queen of Purell. No, not sponsored. I wish. (laughs) But I think that it is really interesting how many people do die and are affected by the flu on an annual basis. And yet this is getting all the hype. But you're right that we've just gotten so used to the flu being part of our lives.
1: You know, it's interesting. I've heard CDC officials say when people ask them the same question, what can we do to prepare for this? And one of the first things they say is get the flu shot on top of washing hands and the and the six foot distancing and everything, because the reality is that the same risk is there for what we see seasonally as influenza. And so many people don't actually get the influenza vaccine, which in that case can prevent it. So I think it's, it's uh, kind of the silent message about you, we're already as a population not doing what we could be doing for something we know comes every year and kills 40 to 60,000 people.
0: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about this. I feel like whenever this episode airs, so much could have changed since, you know, our recording, but thank you for doing all the work that you do and for having this chat with me.
1: You're welcome, Harper. It's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, and hopefully we'll meet someday.
2: Hi, my name's Andrew Kessler. I was born in Los Angeles. I live in New York City. I have a company that's trying to redesign face masks so that they'll be more effective, more wearable, more fashionable, more comfortable. It's called Scuff, like cough and scarf put together in a smash word, Scuff.
0: I love it. And why did you create this?
2: This idea, you know, it came out of um, this sort of incongruity in how people relate to others when they're sick here in North America versus places like Asia. And I thought that it was a sort of a funny idea that we are so cavalier about not protecting other people by just putting on a mask because it looks funny when we have a cold or the flu. And we just decided to take on this product design challenge of could you make a face mask that people in North America would be excited to wear? And then when we started sort of diving into the problem, we realized that we had sort of fumbled into this. One, a really challenging design problem. And two, that flu is actually a huge killer in the United States and the whole world. And that there's also just like these particulate matter air pollution problems that are really massive and everywhere. Um, Recently, the, the Lancet, or not recently, maybe four years ago, the Lancet came out with this landmark study about just how harmful air pollution is. And so we just sort of were taken by the problem and the issues and just started designing around it.
0: So the concept was not specifically for on airplanes, was it?
2: It wasn't. That's just, you know, our sort of our niche audiences sort of developed around folks who their doctors were recommending that they wear some kind of mask and people who traveled.
0: So how do you explain how it differs from other masks? Obviously, people can't see it right now listening to the show. Can you explain how it works and what it looks like?
2: The idea is that it just looks like a scarf or a bandana that you're wearing that you have pulled up over your nose and mouth. We didn't want it to look like a medical device or a sort of a aggressive face mask, but sort of subtly fit into your existing fashion choices. But what's happening on the inside is that we developed a little pocket system that has an elastic band that goes around the base of your neck that is then fitted with a high performing filter. And we worked with this uh, defense contractor, these guys who make filters for gas masks and to sort of make a filtration approach that we thought would be very effective. And we did a bunch of testing around it. So we basically tucked the highest grade filter that we thought we could make into the most comfortable and wearable form factor to try and get some good results. That's amazing. The problem with wearing a mask, and, and there are different masks for different situations, but it's not that comfortable to wear for a long time, you know? And so you're, you're only as protected as the thing that you're wearing. So we, we tried really hard to make it comfy.
0: It's interesting that you decided to take on this task because I feel like as someone who has lived with an invisible illness my entire life and in recent years have become more cautious on airplanes and knowing that I should probably be wearing a mask, I don't because number one, I'm afraid of like the judgment and the looks that people are going to give me and assuming that something's wrong with me or what yeah. are they going to catch because I'm wearing this and number two, exactly what you said, which is that they're not comfortable and I'm super claustrophobic to begin with. So why do I want a mask on my face on a plane and then likely putting on an eye mask when I'm you know, trying to sleep on a long flight? So I think it's really interesting to take this approach. And I think the big thing also that's really interesting is that I love the branding because so many medical related things are so clinical and this just feels like wow I want one of these things it really reminds me of my friend's company comrade who modernized compression socks and just making you know medical things more accessible and more modernized which clearly you've really nailed
2: well thank you that's very kind of you it's interesting is as you know more sort of brands pop up trying to operate in the space I think we'll see that this Category, I think, becomes more popular as people realize the sort of the dangers of particulate matter pollution. As there are more fires from climate change and things like this, it's it's becoming a sadly a popular genre.
0: And what kind of response have you gotten from people? The ones who have found it and purchased it, and as you were saying before we started recording, the like diehard fans.
2: Yeah, so I mean, we've had this sort of core audience of folks who um, are facing some medical issue and, and maybe their doctor recommends that they wear a mask. And we've done well as just just really with word of mouth in that space. We don't really do much advertising at all. And because it has been a, a just sort of a, a design project for us. And then people who traveled started adopting it. And then folks who are looking to um, not get sick on their flight. So they have some acute need. I think we've seen um, Busy Phillips Instagram us quite a few times on her long haul flights. She's become a fan and some other folks who are traveling and don't want to get sick. And so that's been another audience. And then we see real spiky sort of demand when, when something in the world happens, like there's a flu outbreak or there's a fire or something. But then this corona moment has sort of been a kind of whirlwind
0: so yeah, talk to me about that and what it's done for you guys. And obviously, what your thoughts are on the importance of wearing a mask as opposed to not right now.
2: Yeah, it's a complicated question. Um, one, for us, it's, it's been just bonkers. I mean, we've literally sold out of everything. We're having real trouble keeping things in stock. And because global supply chains are fairly disrupted right now, it's taking us a minute to ramp up production. And there's a real complication around sort of selling into this panic. N95 surgical masks are what first responders need who are in very close contact with the people that they're, you know, sort of addressing a health crisis with. That's not what we are, but sort of, we don't want to encourage people to sort of panic by masks right now because we want to make sure there's enough for first responders and things, but it's good practice to cover up if you're feeling sick. And so that we want to be very supportive of, you know, we probably refer people to the CDC 50 to 100 times a day right now to get their good health advice. So it's been been fairly dramatic in the uptick in volume.
0: How long has it been that you've been out of stock?
2: It's about a week now, maybe a little bit longer.
0: And you've been in business for how long? Five years. Wow. And have you ever experienced this before?
2: um, some spikiness, not like this. This is probably 10 times bigger than even the fires or yeah, it's big.
0: I think a big thing is that different countries are recommending different guidelines for mask wearing. You know, some are saying wear it if you're sick. Some are saying wear it for protection from getting sick. And others are saying, stop wearing them. They're not helpful. Save them for the people that need them. You know, like you said, the workers and the nurses and doctors. So it's like this wild, wild west of like, what's the right answer here?
2: It's very hard to navigate. What we tell people is one, look at the CDC recommendations there. If you're just a lay person who's not in close contact, you just keep washing your hands, cover up if you get sick, if you have symptoms, report them. And that's, that's really all you can do right now. Uh, stay healthy. <laughs>
0: And so what is your plan for rolling out more products, hopefully, that people can have access to time-wise?
2: You know, we're working with our suppliers as quickly as possible to get back in stock. We're we're working on some new designs to make sure that sort of our supply chain is more diversified so that when things are disrupted again, it's easier to get things in stock. How can people find them when they are in stock? When they're back in stock, you can find us at scoff.com. So- like scoff scarf and cough mixed together. S C O U G H dot com. Scoff.
0: Awesome. Thank you.
2: My name is
3: John Boyle and I'm the president and CEO of the Immune Deficiency Foundation.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what you're feeling as it relates to, you know, running the Immune Deficiency Foundation and the coronavirus and what information you're providing to your community?
3: Well it is always interesting when a, a new pathogen or something that's kind of spreading to the. US uh, that you know is not something that is the run-of-the-mill issues such as influenza comes on and because people have a lot of questions and the information that is made available by things like the uh, Centers for Disease Control CDC are not aimed at our community and so people come to us with questions saying, well I've seen that other information how does that relate to us and it is a challenge of course because in a lot of cases there is no additional information that is out there but of course we can rely on clinical immunologists who we know to help put some context to help talk about with all of the primary immunodeficiency or pi patients that they see the sort of things that should be top of mind that maybe those with pi need to be even more cautious about and more thoughtful about than, let's say, the average person with a more complete and healthy immune system.
0: So what do you think some of those concerns are and things that people should be doing more preventatively than those without invisible illnesses?
3: In general, hand washing, not touching your face, making sure that you're not really doing some of those basic things that cause person-to-person transmission of any pathogen out there is what a lot of it is about. If you have a compromised immune system and you are, for example, on immunoglobulin therapy, you're getting antibody replacement therapy to give you back a lot of what it is that you're missing, you may not be as at risk as you might be concerned that you are. But still, there's a lot that's unknown. And so we are really recommending that everyone... A, follow the CDC guidelines, but then B, talk to their doctor, talk to an expert immunologist or someone who treats other people with PI. The crowdsourced information that people gravitate towards is sometimes accurate, but generally not. And we get people coming to us with questions to which we say, well, have you talked to their doctor about that? They say, well, no. say, please talk to your doctor first. We are a font of information. But when it comes to something that is new and something that is very specific to you, because we, again, have 400 different forms of primary immunodeficiency under this umbrella that we serve, everyone is unique. Uh, we are theoretically more at risk. And so we theoretically have to take more precautions. But more than anything, we just have to be aware, be very cognizant of uh, risk management. You know, Do you want to be out there with this crowd of people, is this a situation that you maybe could minimize your exposure risk as time goes on? That's really what it is that we're trying to get people to think about and to talk with their, their families or their co-workers or their classmates about, because it's not even so much always about whether we get sick and how we respond to that, but if the people around you are getting sick, then... The odds are just going to go up that you're going to have a problem with it and you may not bounce back from it the way that someone else would. And then, of course, you know, there are more specific questions. Should I take my child out of school? Should I stop, you know, going out? To which we generally at this point are saying, no, 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 there's no reason to do that. But for all these fears that you have, for all these concerns, you have to talk with your doctor about your specific issues and your specific vulnerabilities for example, if they have medication, that the odds are very good that the supply chain that provides them with their medication, be it a pharmacy, especially pharmacy, their doctor's office will continue to have access to it. But they do need to talk with their doctors about plan B. What if there is an interruption? How do I get access to this? You know, Where do I call? What do I do? Because our health depends, in a lot of cases, On these medicines being uh, readily available to us. So that is a conversation to have. But we're trying to keep people from, if you will, overreacting, stockpiling medication. Because in a lot of cases, there's only so much to go around when it comes to immunoglobulin at any given point. If people start stockpiling, then it might mean that there's going to be less available for the next person. So it's a fine line. And it is, I think, ever-changing as the U.S. begins to get more coronavirus cases, but a lot of our role is to help keep people as calm as they can be, put things into perspective, talk about the best practices, but then make sure that they are going to the most credible, most informed sources, which are generally their care teams, as opposed to practices that you know they are crowdsourcing from the Internet.
0: Have you shifted anything in your lifestyle thus far, changed any travel plans?
3: I have not changed travel plans, but I do have a fair bit of travel that's coming up and we're monitoring that. If it makes sense, uh, I will cancel or I will postpone, but I'm not going to do that out of an overabundance of caution. You know, I want to live my life. I want to finally go on a, a vacation with my wife coming up. So really, unless it is Pretty much guaranteed to be a risk. I'm not going to do it. That being said, I am changing other things. I was actually just announcing this to my colleagues. I am no longer going to shake hands. I'm no longer going to shake hands with anyone. And that is as a guy, as someone, you know, who frequents DC, who culturally was brought up to shake hands as a form of greeting. That's going to be a little tricky, but it is one of the most basic things that we can do to, you know, minimize. The chances that we're going to be picking up not just COVID 19, but influenza or any other number of uh, pathogen that might be able to be spread by that sort of contact. So, I want to show people the love, show people I respect them, whether that is through an elbow bump, a fist bump, uh, a bow. I don't really know. It's going to depend a little bit on the situation, but it will keep me safe. And I think it'll also help to break down the sort of obligatory, hey, I'm going to shake your hand and then feel like I've got a purel it afterwards. Let's just stop doing that. It only makes sense, uh, at least from the immune deficient community, from my perspective. And my hope is that maybe we will break that down a little bit and maybe get people to be a little bit more thoughtful about those issues where they might be, frankly, more at risk than some of the things that I think people are concerned about at the moment.
0: How are you communicating with your son about this as it relates to you living with an invisible illness and being a little bit more susceptible?
3: A lot of what we talk about is the fact that we don't really know how COVID-19 and other pathogens are out there might affect someone like me. So we have to be extra vigilant. He has to be extra good about washing his hands when one of his friends is sick or appears to be to give them some distance, to maybe suggest that they stay home, that they not come over to hang out. And so a lot of it is just about talking about the things that he can do to keep himself healthy, because if something happens to him, I'm going to be caring for him along with my wife, and uh, we want to make sure that no one in our immediate circles catches any of these things, that we protect ourselves as best as we can, because it's good for all of
0: us. Awesome. Awesome. That's super helpful, John. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Gracio for the design.